Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So this song's super important to me because I was a keyboard player in the 80s and the band I was in was just starting to gig and just starting to get good. And this for a while was our signature number because we, you know, we played top 40, played, you know, whatever we could learn. Right. So <laughs> what did like, your guitarist do in the solo? The solo is technically really challenging. What the guitarist did in the solo was <laughs> we just cut the guitar solo and went right <laughs> to the keyboard solo. Oh, so keyboard did. solo. We just cut, I went right to the So we tried to make people forget that there was a guitar solo. By the way, I'm going to get a time machine and fly back in time and boo your band. (laughs) You better get in line. 50 years of music with 50-year-old white guys. are you on this fine Wednesday evening? We're good, Timmy. Ready to do it. Ready to do 1984. Big, big year for music. Uh, Jeff, you're back in Berkeley. Back home. Made it across the country. 6,000 miles of driving. Uh, wow. It was amazing. But I How's am the- uh, happily back in the world <laughs> that makes sense to me. Talk how's to the uh, How's the car? It did all right? Oh, man, it's not for this podcast, but uh, the car saved us from a horrific, horrific accident on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Oh, she is God. now named Betsy, and she is a member of the family. So, I'm sorry, what's her name? Betsy. Betsy. Oh, it's lovely. I don't know why. It just okay. felt, it felt right. So. And Ben, uh, Knoxville is starting to gear up for the school year. Uh, yeah, man, I- we kick off at the law school next Wednesday, so we're ready to go. And it's online learning, but do you actually have students? Oh, on no, campus? my friend. We're a hybrid. I'm going to have half those students in a class. All right. Wow. Ma- uh, masks? Everyone's going to wear a mask and we're going to be socially distanced. Yep. Uh, but yeah, everyone says a high level of stress and fear. So Yeah. Well, we've, we've redesigned every classroom to create that distance. Everyone's going to be masked. Um, and we might even have some volleyball matches outside, which would kind of be... Oh, that's awesome. Kind of cool. Volleyball is yeah. well set up for that. Yeah, it really is. Um, all right. Well, welcome to the uh, Music City Podcast Network. And this is 50 Years of Music. <sighs> Sigh with 50-year-old white guys. Dude, uh, we're still here, man. Put an exclamation point. I don't want to hear a sigh with that. 
<laughs> you know what's worse than being 50 years and alive? I'll just let you figure it out. But yeah, yeah. You, you're going to have to talk to Flannery. She's going to have to redo our uh, intro. Uh, by the way, we love the feedback. Uh, I got to read this, this iTunes review of our podcast. Jeff, Tim, and Ben have such a fun vibe. Okay. I like this so far. I love the digs at the Grammys and the back and forth banter about music. What constitutes a good song and why? Please make a playlist to accompany the podcast. We actually have done that. It's, it's on Spotify under Tim Plain. And then the reviewer says, P.S. Why does that robot lady announce the artist before you play a clip? <laughs> so my thinking was that there's such great music being bandied about and we're not always clear. It's nice to just take a pause and actually get out the, the, the clear uh, title of the song and the, the artist. And that way, if people want, they can write those things down and check them out later or something like that. Um, here's the opening question of the podcast. When your wife is trying to open up a school in COVID times, do you read the iTunes reviews that mention her? Well, she's a robot lady for sure. Robot ladies love to hear praise for being robot ladies. Exactly. If, if robot movies have taught me anything, she will be happy to receive positive feedback. Hopefully he said, hello, robot lady. <laughs> they love you on iTunes. Um, the correct... I want to know, Tim, have you pranked yeah. her yet and asked her to read really inappropriate things like you know like told her that my songs by the butthole surfers just so she yeah butthole surfers with a straight face all right that's that's actually not a terrible idea um but in answer to the question uh no you do not read her those particular reviews well let's get into 1984 the grammy winner if you will jeff simons it's the grammy winner What's Love Got to Do With It by Tina Turner. You must understand the touch of your hand makes my pulse react. That it's only the thrill of boy meeting girl I possess a track. It's physical, only logical. You must try to ignore that it means more than that. Oh, what's love got to do? It's got to do with it. Tina Turner. Ben, what do you think? That's a good one. I don't like, I, I really, really, really don't like that keyboard sound, that fake flute. Like, that's not okay <laughs> at all. <laughs> but the guitar part is great. Like, that guitar part's great. And what can you say about Tina Turner? Dude, right. I remember this really vividly. First of all, the video is great. But second, yep. like, to have her mount a comeback yeah. after the life that she lived and the things right. she went through, even as a 14-year-old, I was like, come on now, Tina. Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Jeff? Totally agree. I, I'm not going to say anything. I mean, 
I agree with Ben. It's a little, the, the production of Private Dancer, the comeback record is cheesy, but I'm thrilled that it gave her her moment that she so richly deserved. She's a, she was a phenomenal talent, completely under, misunderstood and misused by an abusive wretch of a human being. And right. uh, the fact she got to have this moment, I actually, it's too bad we had to fade out there because the, I love the chorus of that song. There's all this open space. The one has nothing on it. It's like, what's love and then there's all this do 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 like whoever arranged the chorus did a brilliant job which is why the verses stick out as so bland and has that horrible flute ben can you name <laughs> the other songs that use that exact flute song that piss you off so much oi no so you got right across the river by dire straits with that and sledgehammer. Like oh, dude! Oh, yeah. Oh, right. yeah. Same exact oh. sound. Same exact. That's people. a great joke, and that's awful. That's awful, <laughs> right there. But yeah, I, love, the, I think. Go, go ahead. ahead. Now, on the goofy thing, uh, the lyrics to "Private Dancer" itself are a running joke amongst myself and my brother. The Deutschmarks are dollars. Like anytime we were in Europe, that was the thing that we just said to each other all the time. <laughs> That's a awesome. great pull. Well, we actually did some research on uh, 50 Years of Music podcast, and we figured out that there is a difference between song of the year and record of the year. Ben, would you like to explain it to the audience? Uh, yeah, so basically song of the year is the number one thing. That's the best picture. Record of the year is actually not pronounced record. I think it's pronounced like record because it's the concept of like the overall production. And this right. now I'm really mad at 83. I was mad already. Right, but right. I'm livid. It's, in my opinion, it's borderline racist to stick Michael Jackson in record of the year where they're like, oh, Quincy Jones is a genius. Right. He's an old man that we know. And then make song of the year a freaking police song. It's just really aggressive and bad. Wow, wow. Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk more about production and producers and their role in just a little bit. Um, but that's a great right. point, and it reminds me, like, as I love to to make fun of Boston. Who did the Celtics draft after Eric Montross? Remember, they drafted that Russian who Doug Collins had never even heard of. That oh no, dude! Terrible. There was no video of him. Right. They go to the guy who does the analysis, and he was like, I, um, I'm afraid we don't have any video, and I've, I've never seen this person. But he <laughs> appears to be white, so it must be okay. Now, but that's the equivalent it? of giving every breath you take the Grammy over Michael Jackson in 1983. In 83. In 83. The Russian, the Russian second-round draft pick, for sure. Okay, I'm a lifelong Celtics fan. I have no idea what the pick is that you're talking about. After well, we'll look it up, my friend. All right, I will indeed. I'll work on that while you take you take us artfully to the next segment. Go for it. Well, whoever had an Eric Montrose reference on our podcast has just won big money because I never saw that coming. Um, 1984. In January, we have a Super Bowl advertisement that kind of rocks the advertising world. It really kind of establishes the Super Bowl uh, of advertising where people are suddenly watching the Super Bowl for commercials. Uh, what was that commercial, Jeff Simons? It was the Macintosh commercial, which ran only once ever just at the Super Bowl. Um, great. Can you describe the ad for us? 
Yeah, they, there's a bunch of people. They're want, they're in a movie theater. They're getting yelled at Orwellian style. And then a young woman wearing um, a kind of a weird combination of uh, Mary Lou Retton's Olympic <laughs> gymnastics outfit. With, She's actually like, a, a, a British Olympic athlete. That's holding, great. Holding a big sledgehammer and swings it through the, the screen and Big Brother blows out and they're all turned to stone. And then there's like a scrolling 1984 the apple will introduce the macintosh 1984 isn't like 1984 it was like an right. anti-ibm what i love about it is like she's supposed to represent like the common man with the sledgehammer and the fruits of your labor and it's a computer ad like it's the machine that will replace her on the assembly line in 10 years so oh, it's also, problematic it's, it's pretty cool computer. i remember it's a fancy, expensive computer. Like, yeah, believe really me, proletariats are not like, I need an Apple. Really expensive. Really expensive. Yep. $2,400 back then. Uh, by the way, imagine my disappointment when I finally read 1984 this past year and kept waiting for the woman with the sledgehammer. And like, boy, boy, that was not the ending I was expecting when I finished that book. Um, so fair warning, 1984, the novel... Not a cheery ending. Just brace yourself. Also, Dude, 1984, the stupid ad doesn't have a cheery ending either. It's not like Apple being our corporate overlord just worked out great. <laughs> uh, anyone know who directed that commercial? Ooh, I do not. Um, is it Jonathan Demme? I'm just going to take a guess. It is Ridley Scott. Oh! I made Alien? That's made- awesome. He made Alien, then he made Blade Runner, and then he made that particular commercial. Huge story. Um, Thatcher and Reagan win in landslides. The Summer Olympics. 49 jump. states. 49 states for Ronald Reagan. He just, I remember um, Dennis Miller making the joke, God, Mondale got beat. He only won one state that's only one more than me, and I didn't even run. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Jeff, where were the Summer Olympics held? Oh, not only were they held in Los Angeles, California, but a young Jeff Simons drove across the country with his parents and attended 12 or 13 events. That is terrific. The ticket ticket lottery was run by Sears. That is an old-fashioned sentence. You had to order in your requests (laughs) to Sears. And we won a whole bunch of lotteries. We got lucky. They sent us a whole bunch of tickets for crap. And we drove out to Los Angeles and stayed with my dad's dad. And we went, I saw Carl Lewis win the gold medal in the long jump in person. I saw Michael Jordan and the Olympic team beat West Germany in the, in the semifinal game. I wow. saw handball. I, I mean, it was awesome. I Volleyball? I went all in on the Summer Olympics, man. That is great. Um, it's great. I did not see any volleyball in person. It was a very tough ticket in Southern California. By the way, your parents true. were really good sports. That's amazing. They were into it. We drove all the way across and took like two and a half weeks to do it and then stayed there for the whole two weeks of the Olympics and then drove back. I can't believe the Sears Roebuck Company was in charge of the tickets for the Olympics. It was like a booklet and you had to like circle by hand which tickets and you had to have a first, second, third, fourth, fifth choice. Then you sent in and you had to have a money order from Sears. I remember waiting in line for 45 minutes at the Annapolis, Maryland Sears 
to get the Sears money order to put in the letter with the ticket requests. I mean, things were old fashioned in 1984. Things were old, dude, old fashioned. You're describing 1885. Yeah, that was there was an old guy with a like a ticker tape and a, <laughs> and a handlebar mustache. Like, well, what are we saying? How you do? <laughs> Meanwhile, the Apple Macintosh is coming out. Um, uh, ben Barton, where were the Winter Olympics in 1984? You just asked Jeff. I have no idea. <laughs> Jeff, what do you got? In a country that no longer exists. They were in Sarajevo, Yugoslavia. That is correct. Um, Jeff, my favorite movie came out, Romancing the Stone. Yes, it did. Um, also, I'm going to name a movie. You tell me if you saw it in the theater. Ghostbusters. Yes. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yes. Easy. Um, Amadeus. Yes. Did you? I had a date for Amadeus, one of my first ever dates. And uh, thank you, Breton, for going to the movies with me. She actually taught me how to go on a date. Like she put my arm around her shoulders. It was very impressive. But that Why was... did you choose Amadeus for a date? <laughs> what were you thinking? It was three hours long. I had my arm around Breton for three hours. At that point, it was the high point of my entire life. Listen, sweetheart, romancing the stone. Come on, Dick, choose something that's the word romance in it. Don't choose a weird music movie. I liked Amadeus. Uh, that is great. <laughs> that is so great. Okay. Okay, Let's... I'm done now. Let's go with the number one hit for 1984. We got two. There's a tie. I'm okay. going to play one, the egregious one first, and the less egregious one second. Oh, I don't think Ben's going to agree with you. It's the number one hit. Jump by Van Halen. Do we do the second one or do I, do I get to comment? Let's talk first and then I'll do the second one. All right. Okay. So listen, the first thing I'll say is I mentioned Eddie Van Halen was a restless soul. Okay. I'm serious. He kept changing. He kept looking for new sounds. And 1984 is an example of that. It is an example where he got lost in the keyboard section. Yes, <laughs> I don't know he what did. he was thinking. I mean, that's a freaking disaster. And, um, but I still, I can't believe that. I mean, I, I knew that was a big hit, but that was a number but one hit. That people was a, love that song. Right. Love and that you know, song. like you're doing the billboard numbers, which means yep. that it includes radio play. Like yeah. you yeah. can turn on Hot 100 in New York City and they would be like, hey, it's Van Halen again. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? So this song's super important to me because I was a keyboard player in the 80s and the band I was in was just starting to gig and just starting to get good. And this, for a while, was our signature number. Because we, you know, we played top 40, we played, you know, whatever we could learn. Right. How to play. And uh, A lot fell on your shoulders, Jeff Simons. Dude, when, I rock, when I went into this, crowds literally went a little crazy. So <laughs> what did like, your guitarist do in the solo? The solo is technically really challenging. What the guitarist did in the solo was <laughs> we just cut the guitar solo and went right <laughs> to the keyboard solo. Oh, so, keyboard yeah. solo. 
we just cut. I went right to the. So we tried to make people forget that there was the guitar solo. By the way, I'm going to get a time machine and fly back in time and boo your band. <laughs> you better get in line. All right, here's the second one. A little bit has aged a little better. It's the number one hit. When Doves Cry by Prince. Take a minute and a half to get to it, but that is when Doves Cry by Prince. But that's a great minute and a half. Was gonna be my pick, but I'm gonna pick something else because oh, that's okay. good because that was not gonna be my pick from that record. Oh, okay. I, I love record. that one though. That one's beautiful. And also, so you've heard me complain about keyboards. That's a perfect example where it's fun. Like it's spare, it's empty, it's flavorful. Like it comes in, it comes out. It's perfect. That that. Song is a great song, period, for any a thousand years. That's an amazing song for this year, though. Like, Wait, you compare what? that to the keyboard sounds uh, yeah. you've heard on every other song. Yep. Like, he was so brave to come out with that super spare sound. And, dude, it's so raw. Like, the lyrics to that are just yeah. oh, so brutal. raw. Brutal. Yeah. What, what's, and, and, the, uh, what's the keyboard sound? Give it to me. There we go. Ready? It's just doom, dun, dun, dun. Oh, and it's just dirty, dirty. The amazing thing about this song is it's six minutes. What is the missing instrument from this song, Ben Barton? There's no, no what? Bass? There's no bass. There's really? no bass. And there was on the original demo, and Prince took it out and was like, Sent it to their sent it to the label and they were like, "Where's the bass?" He's like, "Exactly." And they fought him tooth and nail. This can't be on the record. This can't be a single. No one will buy it. Bass is what drives. You know, everyone's putting subwoofers in their cars, and it works so well. And I'm a mm -hmm. bass guy. Like I'm a bass player. I love the low end. It's it's just fits the vibe and the darkness of the song so oh, well. Huh. I the song is empty. Cry. It's completely empty. And it's a real precursor to Kiss, too, which is, yep. depending how you argue, my favorite Prince song. But, I mean, like, the emptiness that he brings to this music is so powerful. Yep. I just wow. love it. And I love it as much as I did in 1984, which is, there are not too many songs you can say about that. Like, oh, right. And also, right, you're right. with me, right? That first 15 seconds, the dirty guitar sound. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. come on, Prince. As good as it gets. And also, there's no reason for it at all. He didn't have to do it. Nobody cared. No one was like, I could not, by the time 1984 came around, like Michael Jackson didn't play an instrument. Nobody was like, oh, you're good at the guitar. It didn't add anything. But that yeah. was where he was at. He was like, I need that. That kicks it off. Yep. Right. Yep. Brilliant. So di did you guys own both of those albums? Yeah. Oh, yeah. In, yeah. in, in 84, you owned both those albums. Yeah, I bought, I, I bought, uh, I bought them both the week they came out. I was on I was on top of both of those. Like I was late to the okay. game on plenty of stuff, but um, I had already fallen in love with Van Halen because of Diver Down, and so I bought 1984 right away, and um, 
And I had bought 1999 in 1982. I was already a Prince fan. Like I had the double record for 1999 in the summer of 82. Right, so right. Equally, I was eagerly anticipating Purple Rain. Hey, well, did you is... go see the movie? I, we'll get to this on my no. pick, but I went to go see that movie with my dad. How? Oh, what? How? Dude, whoa, whoa. Listen, I, like the movie <laughs> came out and I was like, hey man, this is like at the dinner table. I was like, you know, like, that guy Prince came out with the movie and my dad was like, I'll go see that with you. And then he and I like took Whoa. the trip into Manhattan. Wow. And I, I remember really vividly went to the film forum in uh, the village and we went and saw it and, and it's like 1984. So it's late for this in New York, but everyone was high as hell. Like there was a cloud of smoke blocking the screen. And um, <laughs> it was an awesome experience. My, like, I just thought it was super brave and cool of my dad. And uh, yeah, we'll right. talk, I mean, you want me to transition? I'll just do it. So you're 14 years old. Yeah, transition. Yeah, man. Go. We went to go see it. Um, so here's a couple of things. 1999, Jeff's got it right, comes out in 1982. It's a medium hit. Yeah. Jeff, what's the biggest hit on 1999? Little Red Little Corvette. Red Corvette. And what does it rise I to? had that. Tim had that. Wait, and what? I'm sorry, what? What is that hit on the Billboard charts? I'm going to guess like about 36. 15. Number six. Number six. Okay. But it's not a number one hit. 1999 is not a number one hit. The record does not go platinum. He's a medium-sized star. Sure. In 1983, he's recording Purple Rain. He does two legendary concerts in 1983. The first... August 3rd, 1983, the First Avenue Club. And if you've seen either Purple Rain or Graffiti Bridge, that's the big club in Minneapolis. That's the club that's the star of the movie. They bought okay. the club for a month and filmed everything in that club. I love it. Dude, up until this point, Prince has been a complete control nut. He goes to, he, and by the way, you can find it online. Jeff, do you have this concert? Yeah, I own it. Yeah. It's a banger, right? Yeah, great. And it's, oh, it's, it's a great sick. It's a great it's a benefit concert, and he comes out, and he plays, I don't know, 11 songs, and nine of them are songs nobody's heard. <laughs> he records live the song Purple Rain, which is my song, uh, Baby, I'm a Star, and there's a third one that's on the record from that live concert. Okay, yeah. so that's August 3rd. August 20th. He appears very briefly on stage with two other stars. Jeff, can you guess it? August 20th. Nope, I don't have All it. Right. It's fucking crazy. And if you haven't seen the video, you've <laughs> got to go see the video. Okay. James Brown. Wow. Playing God. at the Beverly Theater in Los Angeles. And it's a sad James Brown. He's got oh. the open shirt jacket and he's kind of fat. And the band is like, why are we here? And the Beverly Theater is fine. It's like a 1500 seat thing james brown calls out to michael jackson in the crowd this is 1983 when he's the biggest star in the world michael jackson you're here come on up on stage michael what? jackson comes up on stage what sings for a second and then he does the world's most amazing james brown imitation he does a full-on james brown dance moonwalks and then he goes over to James Brown. The band is still vamping. And he's like yelling in James Brown's ear. And you can see in the video, James Brown is like puzzled. Like, what's going on? What's going on? Then James Brown comes to the mic and he's like, Michael tells me that Prince is here. Prince, come up. Come up. 
He calls out to Prince five times. Prince's bodyguard carries him in a piggyback up. And by the way, <laughs> Michael Jackson and Prince are in the audience. They're in the audience wow. of the James Brown show. He comes up on stage. He grabs the guitar from James Brown's guitarist. Oh, and he just shreds, takes his shirt off. And he's <laughs> like, I'm the sexiest, biggest star in the world. All right, so remember, this is a year before Purple Rain comes out. And I mentioned this because this is how thirsty Prince was. Yeah. 1999 is his fifth record, and it's a double album, and he's a weirdo. Like, his entire career, yeah. he's been a gargantuan, massive weirdo. Right. Like, each one of those records is super strange, but Purple Rain is the one where he's like, this is going to be it. I'm tired of being second. I'm the yep. best. I am the best, and this is my record. And he totally backs it up. Okay. So he's doing, at the same time, he does this stupid <laughs> Purple Rain movie, which uh, if people listening haven't seen, they should really watch. It's yeah. a seven and a half million buck budget, and it makes $75 million. Yeah. It's one of the Crushes most profitable it. movies of the 80s. And it's weird AF. Like, it's a freak <laughs> show, this stupid movie. Yeah, <laughs> like, he's a terrible actor. The movie Aww. barely makes any sense. His dad kills himself in the movie. Yeah. He, like, beats up his girlfriend. It's a tough watch. When he... There's a bunch of spousal abuse in that movie. It's all really uncomfortable. Yeah. Oh, dude, I made the girls watch it when he died, and I hadn't seen it since 1984. And I was like, well, um, yeah. Yeah, times have changed. They were like, did you really like that? And I was like, yeah, I really did. It's hard to explain exactly. But, I mean, he caught lightning in a bottle with this record. Like, the record's amazing. He managed, like, one of the problems that he has is he's too brilliant, and he's recorded too much stuff. And um, he needs, desperately needs an editor. And so in 1984, he really hit the sweet spot where it like all came together for him. He like chose the best songs that he had, he put on a short record, he put on a movie. And then after that, like the rest of his career and especially as time goes on, it just gets more excessive. Um, so but, that's the crazy thing but about it. Is that, go ahead. Well, uh, first of all, can you, can you say again where that concert was? Can we find that concert? That oh, yeah, James but dude, if concert? you look up James Brown, Michael Jackson, and Prince okay. video, you will see the video, and I'm not kidding. It's the world's greatest five minutes. Like, you okay. won't believe how freaking funny it is. And but, um, there's a great Grantland thing where Rembert Brown explains it, and that's oh, also awesome. totally worth reading. Oh, awesome. God, that's so good. I love Rembert Brown. are three songs. So my selection is uh, the song Purple Rain. That's uh, my favorite song from this record. It's a beautiful song. It's originally, he originally wrote it as a country song for Stevie Nicks. That's an actual really? thing that happened. Stevie Nicks what? declined to record it. Oh, bad call, Purple Stevie. Rain, he creates the revolution. And basically he adds Wendy, who's the guitarist in the movie. Um, and she's the one who plays it as a rock song. And he's like, oh yeah, that's right. It's not a country song. It's a rock song. The live version, the 1983 live version is even longer. It's 12 and a half minutes. It's got a whole verse that's not in the one that's in the movie. Um, and it's perfect because it captures the weirdness of Prince. It's eight and a half minutes long. It's got this two and a half minute outro that's like weird to borderline unlistenable. 
Um, <laughs> but the first part of it, like the lyrics are beautiful, the singing yeah. is beautiful, and then the solo that plays it out is just an all-timer. Jeff, Purple Rain. Purple Rain by Prince. Ooh, that first chord. imagine is is all through 1983 when it's just all michael jackson all the time you know what was what was prince thinking remember prince opens for the stones on the uh tattoo you tour and he's booed off stage and they're throwing shoes at him like really hunger man that is such a part of it i love that image of him tim like with the right. master recording purple rain up on the deck just like just you wait you sons of bitches yeah. till i drop this next year yeah. as as he's watching uh michael jackson turn into a werewolf and dance with vincent price and he must be like holy you know i got i can't wait to, to for my moment it's a great song oh so one last thing if you haven't seen the other two prince movies you won't oh, believe how bad they are they're no, no, so jaw-droppingly yeah. awful <laughs> do not see them so he made so- a huge amount of money on purple rain enough <laughs> so that they just wrote him a check for the next movie and yep. he did uh, Under no. a Cherry Moon. You don't even have to watch yep. the movie. Just watch the preview for Under a Cherry Moon. The preview for Under a Cherry Moon features the best song in the movie. What's that, Jeff? Oh, uh, Kiss, I could, right? Kiss. Dude, no, no. it's a video for Kiss. It's just the that's song right. Kiss. It's just the song Kiss. But then all the stuff that's happening that's not Kiss, you're like, wow, this, this doesn't make a lot of sense. This looks kind of <laughs> weird. It's a black and white movie about a male prostitute hustling rich women. That's what the movie's about. And weirdly, that was not a huge hit. Then he follows up with Graffiti Bridge, which is the sequel to Purple Rain. Again, on all these, like if you've done the Golden Raspberry Awards, he won Worst Movie, Worst Director, Worst Actor. (laughs) He won all of the awards. Wait, he was directing these movies? He directed them. He's the director of two more movies. (laughs) I did not know that. And I mean, like, Greedy Bridge was so bad that the, the studio was like, you're not, we can't write you another check. And so he personally financed Graffiti Bridge, and it's a, just a disaster. It's so oh. unbelievably bad. Jeff will act, definitely know this one. The best song in that movie is not a Prince song. Oh, nope. It's the Times Release It, which is one of the all-time great lost songs and we'll ha- even if it doesn't, it's not one of our number ones. We have to pour out some for it when we get to 1992. Wait, did Prince write it, though? I oh, think yeah. he had a hand in it, yeah. Yeah, sure. okay. But, I mean, yeah. 
That, those movies are so terrible. You know what? I was going to go back to Purple Rain. You know, some songs make for a great cover, like other artists can do it and you can do a right. cool version. Purple Rain is uncoverable. I've, a lot of different artists have gone after Purple Rain. Yeah. Every time they do it, I'm like, ugh. Oh, I, dude, I, especially when he died. There were like a dozen. I remember there's a Springsteen Purple Rain. Oh, and it's just such a bad call. Yeah, like, he just and I mean Spring. I'm a big Springsteen fan. I don't begrudge him at all. I appreciate well, not enough to pick him for our podcast. Purple, <laughs> but Purple Rain is a song that's just owned by that guy. Yeah. You know, it's just so it's it when he does it, I love it. And when other people do it, I'm like, oh, should have left that to him. <laughs> I'm going weird as hell. Here's what I'm. Are I'm you? Not, yeah, now that When Doves Cry has been, and Ben picked Purple Rain, uh, When okay. Doves Cry was, was going to, so I got two songs to choose from. I am not going to choose the one that really would be Jeff just chooses a song that means a lot to him. Um, okay. Maybe if, we <laughs> if we like, if the podcast is a big hit and we ever come back to 84, I'll do it. But 84 is the year when um, I realized that I... I already knew how much music meant to me, but I realized in 1984 that music was going to be like just a central piece of my identity for the rest of my life. Like I, I, what I listened to mattered to me more than anything in the world in 1984. I was playing in a band. I, I all, Every spare cent I had, I was spending on albums. And uh, so this year I fell in love with a band that represented to me the possibility that I could one day be a professional musician because if these three guys could be a band, anybody could be a band. So the punk thing happens in CBGB's in New York. It then okay. goes to London and the clash and the sex pistols and that in the jam and the buzzcocks and all that great first wave. Okay. It then goes to Los Angeles and you have bands like X and the Stranglers and a band called Black Flag. Black Flag in 1978 is a hardcore punk band and the lead guitarist of that band, Greg Ginn, starts his own label called SST Records. I'm not a big Black Flag fan, but I'm a huge SST Records fan because for whatever reason, they become the place where almost every great American punk band makes at least one record. Um, and the, uh, the second band that gets signed to the label are three Goonie birds from a little town called San Pedro, California, and they call themselves the Minutemen. The Minutemen's shtick is that all the songs are a minute long, um, which is not what they, they joke around that they're like, they weren't called the Minutemen because the songs were a minute long. It's because they uh -huh. were small, regular people like minute men. But Okay. Their, first their first record is a single, a seven inch 45 called Paranoid Time. It's seven songs and it's six minutes and 51 seconds long. The, <laughs> songs the songs come and go before you know that they're over. And in 1984, they were recording a record and then a band from Minneapolis called Husker Du records a double album of the first punk concept record. It's called Zen Arcade. And Greg Ginn casually mentions to the Minutemen, like, yeah, the next Husker Du record's going to be a double, and it's, we're spending all the label's money on putting it out. And the Minutemen are like, well, I'll be damned if we're going to let Husker Du make. So they just keep writing and writing and writing and writing. They record 45 songs, all in one or two takes, for a grand total of $1,325. That, wow. that includes the recording time, the mix time, the cost of the tape itself, 
There was studio <laughs> recording time. Like the whole thing is done for 1300 bucks. And it's called Double Nickels on the Dime, which is a joke about going 55 miles an hour. And I was on vacation in Florida um, with my mom and a friend. And the first thing I always did was go to the record store and try to buy music for the trip. And I had 20 bucks. And there was a copy of Double Nickels on the Dime. I had only heard of the Minutemen at this point. You couldn't find SST records in, in my little sleepy suburban town. It was twelve ninety eight, which for me was like a fortune in 1984. And I bought it. I'd never heard a note. I put the thing on. And it doesn't sound like anything I'd ever heard before. And it is hardcore punk music, but it is also funky. And it doesn't have the distorted guitar. Everything is crazy clean because the Minutemen's idea were like, D Boone gets all the treble, Mike Watt gets all the bass, Hurley gets all the drums, and we will democratically stay out of each other's race. So it's just deep, thumpy bass and this crazy, <laughs> trouble chicken scratch funk guitar and a monster drummer. The secret to the Minutemen is George Hurley was, they picked him out of a jazz band and taught and and talked him into being in a hardcore punk act. Anyway, I've talked for too long. I'm going to play the whole song, if you don't mind, because it's only a minute and 28 seconds long. And it's called This Ain't No Picnic. And it is my favorite song from one of my all-time favorite records. And it's a totally weirdo, ridiculous pick. But if you're, if you're listening to this and you're actually checking out the new music we recommend, I cannot recommend <laughs> this band and this record enough. This Let's is the go. Can't wait. This Ain't No Picnic by the Minutemen. Those guys go for it, huh? 
Yeah, the whole record's like that. Just that one ain't no one picnic. crazy banger after another. That's one of the longest songs on the record. Well, I love what you said about how they get out of each other's way. It's like, I mean, that drummer is his own man. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. And, and you know, they were, they were real misfits. Also, I mean, like, yeah. you can tell why it was so inexpensive to record. It's obviously recorded live in one take. I mean, yep. they just did one take, and then they were like, that sounded fine. Next one, next one, next <laughs> Let's one. Go. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, this is a classic. Of hardcore punk, another one. <laughs> this is a classic uh, Jeff selection. Um, if you hang out with Jeff and you like music, this is one of the first five records out of his mouth that he encourages. <laughs> He'll stop uh, my favorite from this record is number one hit song, which I think Jeff would agree is also a banger. Oh. Um, and they're hilarious. And it's got a real good sense of humor to it. And also, like, uh, each one of the players are killer. And I do think it's super interesting, like, uh, at least to me, and I remember, uh, Tim, we had this conversation about an earlier one where you were like, but that doesn't sound like punk. I think it was about right, the Clash. Right. And yeah. that's right. Like, at this point, we're starting to branch out now where just right, to, like the guitar sound on that is really interesting. I mean, that dude just plugged in and that was it. No feedback, no nothing. Uh, it's a real jangly sound, especially for punk music. Yeah. Um, and a whole bunch of funky stuff that goes along with it. Uh, it's like basically punk attitude with a mishmash of different stuff. Mm. So yep. Je Jeff, they never, they never like got to the point where they said, "Oh, you know what? We might be more commercially successful if we if we play for three minutes." So this is Did one of the big sad stories of the '80s. So like um, the three guys, D Boone, who's the lead singer. Who was, a, who was a really heavy guy. They were really something to see on stage, too. I mean, when I say heavy, like, D. Boone's pushing three bills, and he's playing this little Telecaster, and he's jumping around like a maniac. He was a really big presence. And then Mike Watt, the bass player, is also a tall, really imposing presence. They were best friends from 12 years old on, like, inseparable. They basically lived in one another's houses, and, and they were both super outcast in high school, and music was the thing that changed them, and... and uh, the Minutemen were hired by R.E.M. to open the Fables tour. Okay. Um, and it was the big break. Like, the record after this one called Three-Way Tie for Last has a couple of three-minute songs, and they're starting, to, they're starting to break. They're playing college radio. And even though D. Boone cannot sing, I mean, I'm not going to defend. <laughs> but he's pitchy, and he's just yelling. But they were really starting to catch on. And but you know they're all DIY. They don't have any money, so they're driving their own tour van. And uh, Boone falls asleep at the wheel on I-10, going from gig to gig. And um, there's a terrible crash, and he's thrown oh. from the van and dies instantly. Um, oh, they man. don't get the, they don't get they don't get to finish the tour and any momentum that they built. And uh, Mike Watt is so distraught, he gives up music for a year. And that, that there's oh, a whole story of how he gets back into it, but. Uh, the Minutemen are, are uh, the Minutemen break up because D Boone dies like in this moment right before they're gonna they're not they're never gonna be famous but sure sure gonna tip they were gonna tip and be a college radio staple and they, they were gonna, gonna make a living they were gonna make a career out of it for sure oh, man so so we're continuing with the uh, the new segment of really sad really sad moments 
No, and also, too, they're a seminal band for grunge and for other stuff. I mean, there's an amazing D-Boon song by Uncle Tupelo. um, And Mike Watt played with Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam loved him. Um, So, I mean, they stayed players. They just never got to be famous. Yep. Mike Watt is still alive and still an incredibly approachable. I mean, Ben, we saw Firehose together, right? It's wild. Yeah. I mean, no, dude, got, and I saw, I've seen Mike, I mean, I saw a Mike Watt solo show where yeah. Eddie Vedder came up and sang with him in Seattle in a tiny club. I was at uh, that show. That was at the Crocodile. I was yeah. at that. We went outside and talked with Watt by the, by the camper van for like Yeah, super nice yeah. guy. Yeah. And great. I would recommend that solo record. That solo record is also great. Yeah, that's good. That's good. All right, well, all right, Jimmy, what do you got, brother? Uh, again, you guys did very well. I am impressed with your knowledge. Uh, I appreciate your your understanding of music, uh, but you came up short this week in 1984. Uh, neither of you were able to to pick the best song of 1984. Instead, we're going to talk about Bruce Springsteen, and we're going to talk about his album "Born in the USA," uh, one of the first albums I ever purchased. I, I actually purchased two albums uh, this year. Can anyone guess the second? Another monster hit. Besides Purple Rain? Didn't buy Purple Rain. Uh, he, was, he was scary. Is it Lionel Richie's, uh, whatever that record's called, the one with All Night Long on it? It is not. Okay. What's the 83? It is Wham! Make oh, it big. dude! That's why Purple Rain wasn't a number one hit. Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go sat at number one with a single right. Purple Rain jammed up behind it. Yes, That's a great it did. Call. Yes, it did. Um, You're <laughs> What else is on that record besides that one song? Everything oh. He Wants, Careless Whisper. No, no. I thought Careless Whisper was just a George Michael song. No, no. no it's on That's that when... That's when they knew he was leaving, and so they said Wham! featuring George Michael. Oh, okay. It was kind Careless of like, Whisper is a good song, too. Yeah. So, but I'm going to go with uh, Bruce Springsteen. I'm going to go with uh, a, a song from Born in the USA called Bobby Jean. Bobby Jean by Bruce Springsteen. So both of you know by this point that I am a, a rank sentimentalist and, and I go for lyrics that tug at the old heartstrings. Um, it was hard to leave. Don't go back to Rockville uh, waiting on the street corner for me. And, and I left that song behind for Bobby Jean. 
because I just love the sentiment of a breakup song that has no ill ill will, no hard feelings. The song ends with, if you do hear this song, you'll know I'm thinking of you and all the miles in between. And I'm just calling one last time, not to change your mind, but just to say, I miss you, baby. Good luck. Goodbye. Do you know who the song's for? Do you know who you wrote it for? Bobby Jean? Yeah. Bob, Bobby Jean? No, it's Steve Van Zandt. It's written for the lead guitar player in the E Street Band who had Oh, quit when he left? Crow, yeah. Oh, I like it even more now. I thought you might. Oh, my gosh. Because Stevie Van Zandt felt he could get his own career going like a, as a solo artist? You know, Bruce and Van Zandt have a great relationship. They were in a band together in 67, 68 in Asbury Park. And then Van Zandt leaves the Bruce Springsteen band for seven years and only comes back in because Springsteen can't finish Born to Run and he asks Van Zant to come in and listen. And he uh-huh. offers a whole bunch of advice off the top of his head. He's like, dude, why are you not in my band? Joins the E Street Band for 10 years and then says, you know what? I want to do my own thing. Bruce is like, okay. <laughs> Does that for uh, 15 years. Uh-huh. And then it's time for the reunion tour. You know, Bruce goes to Steve and says, like, I don't want to kick Nils out of the band, but I'm doing this reunion thing. And Steve's like, I'll just play next to Nils. So now it's Nils and Stevie in the E Street Band, and they've been in it since for the last 21 years. So no hard, no hard feelings. No, they have a really, they have a very, they seem to have a very genuine, special, like, we've been friends since you we were 15, and so we're friends, you know? It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's super funny. There's two songs that are kind of uh, Van Zant songs on that record. And weirdly, I like the other one um, better is No Surrender. Um, yeah. And so those two are linked in my mind. Um, I, I, I've said this, basically. This is the biggest hit of Springsteen's career. And I just couldn't forgive that keyboard sound. Oh, I mean, I know, that keyboard man. sound just really hurt my feelings. And it wasn't until I had to work backwards to come to like him. Right. Um, and basically, that's why I always choose the live version. You know, I, I, I went to the live version of this on uh, that. What was the big box set? The Bruce Springsteen Live. Live to 85, yeah. Yeah, hated the live version of the song. I thought that he sounded so, weirdly bad. I, I thought he sounded so, so weird. Live, he's so got strange. a bunch of bad but recordings why? on that. You know yeah. why the record is so bad? Why? So they took all those incredible recordings and decided that America wouldn't like it if it sounded different. They replaced the kick and snare on the entire record with a 1985 in-studio kick and snare. That's what? why all those recordings sound like crap. And now that he's releasing all the live concerts on his website, you're like, wait, I owned this song when it came out on that box set. Why does it sound different? It sounds different because they went into the studio and replaced all of that. Why did they do that? So that why? there was the sameness to the listening experience and so that it would sound great on 1985 radio. Well, that's just dumb. Right. So if you find, if you go to live, <laughs> if you go to Bruce Springsteen's live internet site where he's been releasing a concert a right, month right. in the last six years, you pick an 84 show with Bobby Jean on it. Sounds great. doesn't sound anything like that box set. All right. Well, I will do that. Um, that's a great selection, though. You're making progress. I like it. I know. I'm proud of you, my man. Right? A deep cut from the record. That's good stuff. It's a deep cut. I thought we might it's get my Bruce. hometown. <laughs> I really thought that. I'm not kidding. I mean, 
when you start choosing, I'm like, what would be worst? Like I'm, dude, I'm narrowing down on it. So I'm dude, really glad this was much better. I, I mean, I got to tell you, right? My dad died in 83. This comes out in 84. My hometown was, was right there for me. That was, was like, on the oh, list. God. Huh? Oh, God. But I also think like having a, a relationship when you're 14 and not understanding what's going wrong and then being able to like years later look back and, and understand the good parts of it. Oh, that that hits home for me. Anyone? Uh, so, Jeff, you had your first date, right, at Amadeus. Ben, did you go on any dates at the age of 14? Oh, no way. No <laughs> way. Dude, I put myself up. I talked to a girl. This is not working out for me at all. 14 was U-G-L-Y exclamation point. Okay. Okay. Well, I had a lot of time to listen to Purple Rain. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I am. I am so happy. India has taken you in. I think that's really great. Oh, it's to my uh, benefit. I promise. It's <laughs> great. All right, fellas. Great night tonight. I will. Uh, I'll see you next I week. I that, guys. I need to. Yeah. That. These Good are call. the. These are glory years for me, man. Picking oh, songs. So great. Eighties in these eighties years. So hard for me. I love these. I love thinking about these years. These years. So fun. Well, we got eighty-five uh, next week that's live aid that's uh all sorts of fun you're not gonna pick baja's time and tide are you just don't can i just tell you now don't pick that freaking song dude do you understand what an important song that was in my life my brother pat is gonna hear you and he's gonna be very upset with you pat don't let him <laughs> hey if you get the chance listeners baja time and time it'll change your life all right see you guys Thanks for listening to 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. If you like what you hear, leave us a good review on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. And come visit us on our Facebook page where you can weigh in on who actually had the best song of the year. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric cast. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Thank you.